Hilda, thank you very much indeed. And a very good morning to all of you. Lovely to be here with you today to unpack and uh, look at this fantastic uh, resurrection appearance in uh, John's Gospel. It's one of the most vital and engaging of all of them. Uh, The New Testament scholar Charlie Dodd uh, wrote this, and I find this really interesting. He said, the resurrection was not a belief that grew up within the church. It is the belief around which the church itself grew up. So it's, a kind of, it's like a refinement of which came first, the chicken or the egg, okay? Uh, and who knows the answer to that one? Apparently, according to evolutionary biologists, it was probably the egg. Uh, but uh, which came first, the resurrection or the church's belief in the resurrection? And some people would, would have it in the sense that the church kind of started and it got going. And, and as it got going, it started in a sense to, to look back and say, well, something amazing must have happened. And so it started to in a sense, formulate a belief in Jesus' resurrection. Uh, the New Testament, it, it sees it entirely the other way around. And it basically says the resurrection comes first. And in a sense, the resurrection of Jesus then shapes entirely the church as it grows and that was the thing this kind of unexpected interruption into the life of the disciples that is what creates the church I don't know about you I love the resurrection appearances as recorded in all of the gospels I love the authenticity I love the doubts I love the down-to-earthness they're breathless they're fragmentary they're wispy but they're stunning in their effect. Jesus coming back to life after his crucifixion was shocking. It was a startling intrusion that no one was expecting, least of all the disciples. There is not one whiff of propaganda that was made up years later to justify other things that the church believed. And clearly, it takes a while for the enormity of the resurrection to sink in, as you can imagine it would. And and it's just beginning to sink in now in John 21. Uh, It's enormous because it says something about who Jesus is, but it also has radical consequences for the whole world. Jesus, as we see him in the Gospels, post-resurrection, is still Jesus, but we see him in a new light All that was true of him before is still true now, and yet there is more. And if there are any Tolkien fans here, that's exactly what Tolkien was trying to do in having Gandalf the Grey die in his battle with evil, and then he comes back as Gandalf the White, fuller, bigger, and yet still Gandalf. But the passage starts, if you look at verse 3, with Peter saying simply, I'm going out to fish. And I hate fishing with a passion. Sorry, Duncan. I, I know that. And Luke, disappointed, I know. Uh, but it, it's, really, it's not really my thing. But it was his thing. If you remember, Peter and the other disciples had deserted and betrayed Jesus. Some of the women closest to Jesus had found an empty tomb. John and Peter raced to the tomb. They find it empty. Jesus appears to all of the disciples in the upper room, as we saw last week, and tells them, wait. So this is waiting time. I wouldn't use waiting time for fishing. 
Uh, I would do other things. But Simon uh, goes back. He's not, he's not giving up by going back to Galilee and fishing. He's just, he's just waiting. He goes back to his roots. He's still the leader. So what he does, everybody else does. And they fish and they fish. And as is the way of fishing, they fish and they catch absolutely nothing. That is what fishing is all about. I'm right. I'm right. I can say. Um, Jesus appears on the shore. If you remember, very early in the morning. Notice how gentle and subtle the approach is. He doesn't stand on the shore and sort of announce with trumpets, heralds, I am the son of the living God, risen from the grave. Bring that boat to me now, children. Instead, he simply shouts out, Friends, haven't you any fish? You can feel the simple disappointment in their no. To them, I mean, that is the experience of fishing, isn't it? No. (laughs) To them, Jesus is still a figure on the shore, nothing more. Throw your nets on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, it's an unusual thing for a bystander to say, although I dare say uh, some of our fishing enthusiasts here may have been given uh, advice uh, over the years that they may have found annoying. Uh, Clearly, they don't know it's Jesus yet, but they immediately encounter a huge shoal of fish. In verse 7, we read that John, the beloved disciple, still has the clearest insight. Just as on Easter Sunday, when they arrived at the empty tomb, we're thinking, it's kind of obvious, guys. A lone figure on the seashore tells you to lower your net one more time after a fruitless night of fishing. You do lower your nets, you catch a whole load of fish, and still a little bell doesn't go off in your head saying, hang on a minute, this feels familiar. Something like this has happened before. That is hindsight for you. If you remember Luke chapter 5, Simon Peter first met Jesus in a very similar circumstance. And letting the nets down then was an image for our small part in the loving mission of the kingdom. We are the people, we are the women and the men who let the nets down in order for God to do his work of saving other people. It's John who says, it's the Lord. Other things haven't changed. John sees things clearly. Peter is the first to act. He's not going to hang around mending nets if Jesus is standing there on the shore. And so off he swims. I wonder what he does. Do you think he goes and hugs Jesus? Does he go and stand a little way off, sort of waiting for the others, slightly nervous and unsure? I don't know. Some other things haven't changed. Jesus is still the servant. Do you notice? Just as he'd taken a towel at the Last Supper and washed his disciples' feet, just as he told them that love is shown most clearly in humility and in self-sacrifice, so now he is the perfect breakfast host. He's prepared a fire. There's already some fish cooking on it. There's some Bread, gently baking. Wouldn't you, have been, wouldn't you have loved to have been part of that breakfast? Peter likes being given something to do, and so he springs to attention when Jesus says, bring some of the fish you've caught. And Peter, Peter jumps back on board, and he drags out the whole catch, all 153 fish. Now that number, 153, is, is very specific, 
Have you ever caught 153 fish in one go? No, no, don't. Yeah, five, five. Was it this big? Hundred and fifty three it's very specific. It, it's definitely a boat full. And now you know what fishermen are like. Sorry guys. Uh, they they probably did count them, uh, maybe a bit of inflation. Uh, good bragging rights afterwards, and they clearly couldn't eat them all for breakfast. But but does John stick that in, in, in there sense simply to record a historical fact? Or is it something more? Uh, the answer is we don't know. Lots of theologians, as you might imagine, uh, go off on flights of fancy. They're keen to mine the symbolism of 153. It's a bit like the numbers in Revelation that we looked at last year. You can make numbers mean almost anything. So St. Jerome found a fish expert who claimed that handily there were 153 species of fish in the known world. Of course, there's many more than that. And so, but to Sir Jerome, it signifies, uh, it says, all people, uh, the, it says, the totality of the world, people of every class, every time, every tribe. Since Cyril broke 153 down into three numbers, 100 is the great number of Gentiles, 50 is the smaller number of Jews who come to faith, three is the number of the Trinity who make this happen. St. Augustine observed that uh, there are 10 commandments which we can't keep, but we should keep. We need God's grace, and we need the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. So you've got 10 commandments, seven gifts. Add those together, you get 17. If you add all the numbers from 1 to 17 together, you get... <laughs> come on, come on, come on. Someone knows? 153. Okay, so all the numbers from 1 to 17, 153. It's fair to say that in John's symbolic world, that this 153 is probably more than simply a number. Although I think it is a number. It probably represents the totality of the nations drawn into the new creation post-resurrection. In Acts 2, 9 to 11, Luke records, interestingly, 17 countries represented in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So the catching of the fish, it's not random. It's not just for a great breakfast. It was in itself an act of restoration of the disciples and of commissioning of the disciples, re-reminding the disciples what it is that they are to be about. They were fishermen, but they were called, in a sense, to stop the fishing of fish and begin the fishing of people in God's loving purposes. So it's still dawning on them in this slow-motion encounter with Jesus. Is he different? Is he the same? They know it's Jesus, but they also know he was killed and they dare not ask, who are you? But of course, that is what they're thinking. Here are the things that strike me about this resurrection account. The first is the forbearance and the gentleness of Jesus. It wasn't just an empty tomb that convinced the disciples, although the Bible clearly teaches that the tomb was empty and its evidence is convincing. It was also this series of intimate, personal, actually rather low-key 
encounters with Jesus. If you compare the resurrection to Jesus' birth, there are no squadrons of angels filling the skies. There are no exotic kings bearing gifts. There are no dazzling miracles or stars in the sky. It's all quite ordinary. Bread, fish, fire, water, people eating together. Jesus doesn't overwhelm them or bully them into a resurrection faith. Their conclusion is true. It is the Lord. But Jesus is gracious and tender and understanding of their confusion. And his understanding of the need of their mind and their heart to catch up with their ears and with their eyes. Many of us, I think here, could speak of the perseverance and the patience and the forbearance and the gentleness of Jesus with us over the years. It's something that we celebrate. It's something that we thank him for. It's something that we seek uh, to emulate and to model to others. The second thing is this. Then and now and always, the initiative belongs to Jesus. Jesus is boss. Throw out your nets, he says. Bring some of the fish. Come and have breakfast. There is a way, isn't there, of doing church that mistakenly sees the initiative for church as ours. We decide to come together. We think church is a good idea. We have great ideas about the kind of church that we would like to be. We get a band together. We produce a website. And then, and only then, we think, hang on. Better invite Jesus to come and join us. It's all wrong. The initiative and the invitation belongs to him. Here, as so often, Jesus is inviting and welcoming. Come, he says, come. And that's why we are here. We are here at his invitation. And thirdly, we're beginning to see that the resurrection of Jesus is going to change everything. And we need to make sure that the way we see the world and the way we see our lives, in a sense, takes on board this truth that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It, it changes the disciples. It's, it's in the process of changing them from scared, confused, squabbling dummies to bolder men and women of faith and love and courage and hope. They are re-becoming evangelists. That's what they are being called to do. That's why this fishing incident is so important. Very soon, the waiting is going to be over and the Holy Spirit falls on them at Pentecost. But if you notice, it is a resurrection faith from the beginning. The resurrection doesn't sort of sneak in later as something that the church kind of came to believe in order to justify what was going on. It is the resurrection that starts it. It's the DNA of the resurrection that is shot through the whole thing. It's the resurrection that is the impulse for the kingdom, in a sense, spreading out into the world. Worship, Christian worship, changed from Saturday to Sunday. Why? Because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. 
the, the two, in a sense, rites or rituals that were there right at the beginning of the church were baptism and communion. Both of those are totally cross and resurrection centered. You can't have them without uh, the cross and the resurrection. So the resurrection has changed everything. And soon these disciples saw life in a completely new way, new beginnings, new hope, new compassion, new love, new courage, and new passion. In a sense, it's our privilege, in a sense, to stand alongside them at this moment in their journey as, in a sense, their minds and their hearts are just beginning to catch up with what God is doing. So let's pray for ourselves now, and let's pray for each other. We would have that same sense of the, in a sense, the earth-shattering reverberations of the resurrection, of the graciousness and the forbearance of Jesus. Let's be quiet for a moment, and we say to God, God, we don't want to be the church that decides what we're all about and then invites you to come and be part of that. We want to be the church who listens to your gracious, kind, understanding, challenging invitation. And that we sit and eat with you. And that our horizons are transformed by your love, your grace, your victory over death. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.